347 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express here do not reflect those of our firms, our clients, our institutions, our families, friends, children, pets, or maybe even our own three weeks from today. We're going to be interviewing Kieran Martin, who teaches at Oxford and was the founding chief executive for the UK's National Cybersecurity Center. Uh, uh, And his experience there gives him a very similar experience to many of our cybersecurity officials, but with some unique uh, uh, perspectives that come from uh, uh, doing this in a different country with a different bureaucratic surround. Uh, But first, the news roundup. Uh, We've got Paul Rosenzweig back, the founder of Red Branch Consulting. Paul, it's just great to have you back. It's good to be back, Stuart. Happy New Year. All right. Uh, And Mark McCarthy, teaching technology law and policy at Georgetown Law and doing tech policy with the Future of Privacy Forum. Mark, good to have you. Thanks for having me here, Stuart. And uh, uh, the uh, host of the really superb China Talk podcast, Jordan Schneider, uh, uh, back to uh, to talk. Uh, we can't talk about cyber law without talking about China. So it's a delight to have you, Jordan. Glad to glad that I earned my keep after my first. <laughs> and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. We uh, we've got some. Uh, Plain vanilla uh, uh, hacker news, Uh, uh, the Justice Department's good news, uh, uh, the Justice Department uh, announced that it had taken down or at least uh, taken global action against the NetWalker ransomware, and there was a combined effort against uh, Emotet, and uh, both of these were sort of public-private initiatives, as far as I can see. Paul, uh, what lessons should we draw from this? Yeah, as to lessons learned, Stuart, I'm really of two minds, right? I mean, the first one is the obvious good news story, right? The Department of Justice is able to coordinate both with the private sector and globally to take reasonably effective action against two of the larger ransomware uh, networks that are out there these days, NetWalker and Emotet. And that's good news because it means that the good guys are able to respond to bad guy actions with some degree of effectiveness. On the other hand, as you kind of press down on it, I'm kind of struck by the Groundhog Day whack-a-mole nature of fighting ransomware, which is to say that, you know, this one got destroyed, uh, but we can anticipate that the next set will come along any day now. And if you notice, buried deep in in the reports about these two particular pieces of of takedown are the fact that only one individual, a Canadian, uh, is going to be personally held to account. And the suggestion, which we all think is quite seriously true, is that most of the real uh, uh, bad actors, the real managers of this, are Russian, and they're hiding behind Russia's you know, perennial uh, 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 cyber curtain of irresponsibility. And so, yeah, it's it, it, it's a little bit like saying uh, we went after McDonald's and we took it down because we we nabbed the guy who takes orders at one of the franchises. Or even we closed uh, one of the franchises down. You know, yeah. all of Evanston, Illinois is free of 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 
of my, McDonald's for at least the next couple of weeks. But, you know, <laughs> Winnetka and Wilmette are still being served by, by McDonald's ransomware. It, you know, look, I don't want to diminish this because it's, it's obviously the result of a lot of really hard work. This is difficult to do. Uh, and, uh, and the department and the private sector actors and, and the foreign governments that worked on this are to be commended for this. But unless and until we get a, a, a better sense of how to impose uh, external non-cyber related costs on the bad actor nation state hosts in Russia uh, and China and, and you know Nigeria that are uh, perennial homes to these kinds of bad actors, this is going to be uh, an unending war. Now, f I, I guess the fine point would be maybe that's not so bad. I mean, we never really want to invest enough resources to eliminate all crime, all real-world crime. Right. The optimal level of robbery in, in the world is not actually zero. I know that's kind of hard to accept, but that's true. Uh, the cost in terms of policing and in surveillance would be too astronomical, and so say so too with the not with the optimal level of ransomware in the cyber realm. That having been said, I don't think we've we've gotten to the optimal level yet, and it's because we haven't, you know, figured out what the systematic, you know, global way of approaching and imposing costs on China and Russia and Nigeria are yet. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's right. You, you could argue that the, uh, uh, the whole uh, police skepticism, Black Lives Matters movement is a reflection of the fact that we have so reduced crime that, that most people aren't worried about crime and they, they have time to worry about the second order effects of enforcing the law. Um, and uh, uh, it would be nice to get there uh, with uh, cybercrime as well. Yeah, well, it certainly would be nice to get to the second order effects. Uh, you know, I, I, real world crime is down because of the of the pandemic, right? Nobody's going out to rob stores anymore. Yeah. That that's not the way that I would want to go about reducing real world crime. So, uh, speaking of reducing real world crime, uh, the Chinese have a a, a solution for us. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Jordan, uh, there was a really good story that is sort of both cyber and China and uh, uh, police work. Uh, uh, it looks as though millions of Chinese police files got leaked and we learned a lot about how they police Uyghurs uh, uh, from the leaked files. Yeah, I mean, that's a great transition because this is like the logical conclusion of bringing of trying to bring uh, crime to zero in a state that doesn't respect civil liberties is what you currently see in Xinjiang. So, um, you know, for a little more context, uh, well, first off, shout out to The Intercept for um, the reporting, di diving through this leaked and shout out also to whoever leaked this database. Basically, what happened was. Um, Landisoft, a Chinese software provider that's sort of like a palantir for Xinjiang policing. It brings in together a lot of different data streams into some um, into some like pretty heavy data sets that uh, you know have everything from health records to um, police interactions to you know full scans of folks' cell phones. Um, this uh, the Intercept was able to get access to and and spend a 
fair amount of time combing through. Um, the findings should surprise absolutely no one. Um, the police are incredibly indiscriminate in rounding up and jailing Uyghurs for the absolute flimsiest of pretenses. And um, uh, the, the, some of the striking things about uh, this report that, that uh, struck out to me was just like the sort of pettiness and invasiveness of the entire regime. I mean, often uh, you see folks' phones being forced to be plugged in into a machine when they go through a checkpoint, and this happens three or four times a day, to the point where people are um, you know, transitioning to brick phones because they're just annoyed that their lives are being so um, inconvenienced. Um, this is sort of on the lighter side. And the darker one, you have um, a uh, healthcare uh, you know, f like a physicals for all program, which uh, also wanted to take face scans and uh, voice uh, voice snippets of folks in order to, um, you know, build out a, you know, near complete database of sort of a biometric um, map of everyone who is, um, who is, uh, who is Uyghur in, in, in Xinjiang. Um, is it totally uncouth, Stuart, to talk about the parallels between sort of coin and U.S. policing in this kind of Alice in Wonderland world here? Well, it, th th I'm sure there are going to be people, uh, in fact, oddly, uh, the people who follow uh, um, a Chinese tech policy tend to, uh, uh, to see U.S. policing as only different bit uh, in degree. Um, so go ahead. Yeah, give me give, tell us what you think. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to make the moral equivalency because I don't think what's happening in the US is, is at all morally equivalent with what's happening to Xinjiang. But you can see how to, there are like, like, um, I guess, like, pearls of the logic, which when they get sort of spun up in a, you know, authoritarian system lead to the system you're in. So, you know, we have quotas and and policemen uh doing civil the equivalent of civil forfeiture by just taking people's phones for no reason because they decide to plant um uh you know suspect islamic uh, you know uh, uh a suspect religious materials on on people's phones you have um the another interesting thing i thought was the um the, the parallel uh, with, you know, how the U.S. ended up pinpointing bin Laden in Pakistan was also through a sort of biometric scheme, right, where they um, were rolling out uh, health checks and were able to sort of cross-check the, the DNA evidence of someone who was living in, in bin Laden's compound in Pakistan with um, another sample they had. So, so um, do you think it's working? Do you think this is, I mean, my impression is that it's, uh, it's all too effective. I mean, working in what sense? I guess we haven't heard any reporting of terrorist attacks, um, which is what the point was in the first place. Um, you know, the proof is really going to be 5, 10, 15 years from now how, the, um, how minorities in Xinjiang are going to behave. I mean, this, this, this sort of policy, I don't think, is something you can keep up forever, um, though... I don't really see a path for Xi to sort of um, roll back this stuff because basically it, his his sort of like win condition is um, being convinced that there will never be any sort of uh, radical violent activity coming out of the region again. And getting to that level of confidence um, when this is the sort of system you've spun up seems to me to be a very tall ask. So do you think... I, I have a suspicion, but do you think that uh, this basic heavy-handed high-tech policy 
is popular with the vast majority of Han Chinese? Um, you know, there's no polling on this, but the sort of upsetting thing is yes. Um, I don't think there is a ton of kind of empathy for the um, for the for the Uyghur minorities. There's a lot of um, you know prejudice they're subject to, even in 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 kind of better times, and. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a Han dominated dominated country. It's what's interesting is is sort of going back historically. Beijing has not always treated um, treated minority populations, um, Xinjiang in particular, in this way. In the in the eighties and nineties, there was a real attempt to sort of like respect differences, and they created all these sort of affirmative action programs. Um, the, the 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 religious leaders who had a really hard time during the Cultural Revolution were sort of reinstated to their positions, and for uh, a few decades, Beijing thought that it could um, sort of co-opt these um, sort of traditional leaders and and kind of bring um, bring a kind of bring us a, a moderate Muslim. Uh, you know, incorporate successfully a sort of moderate Muslim Uyghur population, and coming into uh, 2008, where you had um, you know violence in Urumqi, and then up into 2013, 2014, when there were still occasional sporadic you know knife attacks and uh, cars driving um, driving people over and whatnot. Uh, she basically decided that he wasn't going to tolerate this anymore, and the prior strategy of of accommodation had failed. So maybe yeah. that maybe the maybe the pendulum will swing back at some point, but it seems hard for me to have him kind of declare victory and go home on this, which is you know, yeah. tragic. Yeah, and it's, it's hard, hard to see that it's all that uh, politically painful for him to, to keep it up. Well, I mean, um, this, is the, this is the question is like, will Biden and the rest of the world start to make it politically painful? And, you know, on the, am I going on too long for this? We can, I can. No, that, that, that's fine. Okay. Um, you know, yes, it is not going to become politically painful domestically in China um, anytime soon. But the question is then whether or not, um, you know, the Biden administration can really turn up the heat on this. Um, there is, you know, more and more rumblings in in uh, in Europe potentially about being interested in, in taking some action, though the recent um, uh, EU-China uh, investment treaty probably poured a little bit of cold water on that. Though, you know, Secretary... Uh, uh, Secretary of State Blinken during his confirmation here, he said it was a genocide and, and, and talked about how this was going to be a, ma a major priority for the administration. So, you know, well, good, good luck to him. Uh, um, you know, the EU uh, uh, probably wants to say what all the Uyghurs uh, in Xinjiang uh, need is access to signal and telegram. Um, but uh, that traditional view that uh, uh, human rights are advanced by uh, unbreakable end-to-end -end encryption is starting to get questioned at pretty high levels in the EU. Mark, uh, the council had something to say about that recently. Yeah, uh, uh, some background on, on this week's development is important. Uh, the Council of Europe adopted a resolution uh, on this topic, but it was it was in November of last year. and. It set off some alarm bells uh, because it, it concluded that there should be no single prescribed technical solution to provide access to encrypted data for law enforcement. But, but of course, that meant that there should be a technical way for a government to get access to encrypted material. Now, now the council um, is, is just representatives of the member governments. It, it sets the political direction uh, for the union, but it doesn't draft any legislation. 
So this wasn't in any way uh, draft EU legislation, but it was a political gesture aimed at pressuring the commission, which does draft legislation, to help develop a technical solution. And then in December, the European Commission released a description of its counterterrorism agenda, and it, it included this. The commission will work with member states to identify possible legal, operational, and technical solutions for lawful access to encrypted material. So it looked as if the pressure from the council might have worked or it was part of some coordinated initiative. Well, it took a while, but, but this week, uh, four European uh, app companies, uh, which use end-to-end -end encryption, issued a joint statement saying that these recent moves by the EU institutions were, were aiming at providing backdoor access to encrypted material and, uh, and, and warning against it. As they would, obviously, because that's, that's the would, of their of business model. Uh, but I thought the most significant thing was that the European Union was willing to, to use those words, lawful access, or to talk about security through encryption and security despite encryption. Uh, that's uh, certainly a puzzling formulation, isn't yes. it? Uh, but uh, I, I, I'm not sure what the impetus for the company statements was uh, this week, but frankly, it might have been the growing concern about the the growth of encrypted apps like uh, Signal and Telegram, and the wake of the deplatforming of QAnon supporters. So uh, why, from, yeah, why don't we uh, why don't we do that? I, I think that the end to end encryption is clearly losing support among European governments, uh, and now it looks as though it's it's generated a certain amount of unease inside the companies that are most responsible for uh, giving us that uh, uh, signal and telegram uh, um, as um, well, as I put it in the show notes uh, uh, they've discovered that the wrong kind of terrorist is using their encryption yeah yeah and, and that that's always been an issue but you know um, a, a lot of people left whatsapp recently and and joined signal uh, and uh, they, they seem to have done that. Uh, not because Signal offered greater protection against snooping by uh, outside parties, but because Facebook wanted to integrate WhatsApp more closely with its own services. And, and these guys wanted to have no part of the Facebook universe. Now, now some of them might have been privacy-loving free spirits. I, I don't know. But others might have had something to hide and wanted to keep clear of Facebook's ever more intrusive content moderation techniques. Um, I mean, end-to-end -end encryption wasn't going away from, from WhatsApp. I think I, I, but you know, that's sort of overdetermined that they're going to make that uh, that switch, uh, and it really does. I mean, raise a kind of fifth column uh, uh, since the Silicon Valley workforce, much more than Silicon Valley management, has driven the content uh, uh, suppression uh, movement in Silicon Valley. Um, it, we're going to see that from the people working in these companies as they realize that people they really do not like are using their product to hide from uh, content suppression. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Many, I think many users left the, uh, the Facebook apps because they saw the handwriting on the wall and jumped to Signal and Telegram because they thought it might be a safer place. And, and the growth was really pretty substantial. Uh, but as you say, some Signal employees immediately started to worry that they were getting the, the dangerous refugees from Facebook, not the freedom fighters. Uh, and Telegram itself yep. is, is worried about this. But, you know, frankly, both of them still have um, uh, 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 the posture that, that we saw uh, from Parler, 
which is that anything that isn't spam and doesn't violate the law is, is just fine. And they're not sure what to do when the leader of the Proud Boys says, hey, everybody regroup on Telegram. Uh, you know, it's where we'll conduct our business from here on out. Um, I think a lot of them are realizing that this kind of hands-off policy uh, is, is going to be a problem. Um, you know, th th this kind of encryption technology, it, it's not content neutral. If you don't have a content filter, it can be used for anything. And I think the messaging services simply have not confronted this dilemma in, in any thoughtful way at all. It's going to be it's going to be very painful. This is this is going to be an enormously painful uh, uh, experience for the people who provide these uh, messaging services uh, uh, because there's actually heavy pressure uh, to go beyond encrypting the messages to also disguising all of the metadata so right. that you you can't tell anything about the people who are using your your service. Uh, that's what the privacy advocates want out of this, and then they're going to discover that they provided privacy for people they hate uh, and uh, it will just see how uh, which of those values triumphs my bet is that their hatred for the right will overcome their uh, love of privacy but uh, it'll take another five years um, all right well I want I want to go back to the other uh, a kind of standard cyber attack development. Uh, uh, we've been calling this solar winds it could just as easily be called a cloud or an Office 365 uh, attack, but it's the uh, attack attributed to the Russians. Uh, and we're still learning stuff about that attack. Uh, uh, Paul, uh, uh, what, did, what, what did you make of this week's SolarWinds well, news? The first is a meta lesson, which is that if you want to, Stuart, you can talk about new SolarWinds revelations every week for the next six months. And you can schedule that now and... <laughs> I can almost guarantee that you'll always have something new to report. Um, on the other hand, it's almost like uh, you're reporting the same thing every week, just with new players, right? We are, we know that there were at least three vectors for this attack, the solar winds, Orion updates, the cloud services systems provided by Microsoft and VMware. Uh, all of which were compromised and were used to uh, create Trojan backdoors in the recipient systems, which allowed the Russians to choose, pick and choose whom to, uh, whom to uh, activate and whom to start deleting things from. I think what we are starting to learn is that the number of people who were victimized by being exposed to and downloading the uh, initial uh, access software, the initial Trojan, is going to be astronomical. It, I mean, in the end, it's going to be tens of thousands of enterprises. Uh, how many of those were actively uh, engaged in by the Russians is going to take a lot longer to learn. My, my favorite from this week, which has had a personal effect on me, was the compromise of the U.S. court system. Uh, almost everybody who listens to your podcast who is a lawyer has used the electronic filing system, case the electronic case management system, to file uh, briefs, filings, pleadings with the electronic court system. Uh, that was compromised. And uh, that's not terribly surprising. The court system 
has been notorious in its uh, slowness in recognizing vulnerabilities. The result is that for right. sensitive documents, we're going to go back to paper, at least for a while now. Um, and <laughs> right. they're Didn't still the Russians already do this like, like uh, five years ago? Yes. Yes and no. This is much more. Before you know it, we'll be told we have to type yeah, them on manual typewriters. This is much more comprehensive. <laughs> I mean, and and so the the irony uh, is well, two two ironies. The first is that uh, you know filing paper copies of sensitive documents during a pandemic is particularly problematic, right? Because you cannot file on by mail, so you have to go and hand file, which is you know gonna really change a lot of operation procedures. But the other one is that uh, for a large, I mean, here's my irony that Stuart of all people will appreciate. One of the biggest controversies in the last 10 years about uh, court documents is that you have to pay for access to them on, on PACER to get them. So the, the Russians- Yeah, and considering what they charge, you'd think they'd right, have better yeah, so security. So the Russians <laughs> now have free access to that which you and I and our law firms must pay for access to, um, which I, I think I'm going to just write my Russian friends a note and say, would you give me freebie? Yeah, it's, it's sort of it's sort of like like Trump said, uh, Russia, if you got the documents, can right. you release them? <laughs> um, the other thing that I, I think um, is is quite notable uh, about this, and I'll end here, is, some, is a point that Rob Kanaki made for the Council of Foreign Relations, which is that most of our tools didn't spot this, but even the ones that did, didn't identify it as anything significant. Palo Alto, for example, has said that it, it, it identified this intrusion and it notified its customers, but our information sharing system didn't work. And so here we are with one of the largest uh, uh, network security providers in America saying that it actually spotted the, spotted, uh, the SolarWinds Microsoft suite of hacks before they really got going but somehow the information sharing system that we've been working for 15 years to provide didn't tweet that out to everybody in the world and so well and you know we had michael daniel on the show a little while ago he he runs the cyber threat alliance which is supposed to be information sharing for the forensics firms uh, and so there is a question whether uh, Palo Alto should have found a way to at least let people know through the Cyber Threat Alliance that uh, that there was this problem. I'm not so uh, sure it, it was that they didn't have a way of knowing, is that they just didn't recognize that this was as big a deal as it was going to become. I mean, they don't enough. activate the, the Global Threat Alliance for every intrusion they spot. Um, it's intended to be the high value important ones. They just failed to notice that this was one of those. Yeah, and FireEye has said, you know, we found this because somebody tried to uh, uh, register a second phone for authentication purposes, and you know, that was a very low risk uh, uh, event. But uh, the guy who saw the report had time to call up and say, so about your second phone, and the fellow who was supposed to have registered it said, what second phone? And that's how they started peeling this all back. So even small things can turn out to be big uh, 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 you know, uh, symptoms of a, an intrusion. Indeed. All right. I, 
Jordan, uh, when uh, when our cybersecurity collapses entirely, U.S. intelligence now believes that uh, the uh, Chinese want to steal the DNA of a substantial number of Americans. Um, why would they want that? I mean, of all the we, we just we just had Paul do this riff. You know, the 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 the, the future scenario in which they get a like a blackmail i mean sorry let me restart so Stuart, i don't think this is 1972 anymore um mental health issues is now the stuff of heartfelt medium posts not something that would sink a vice presidential campaign and it's not like aids is all that stigmatized anymore so i honestly don't really see this as something to be all that scared about especially when there are so many other you know less um convoluted ways to uh, hack into u.s systems and get you know really juicy blackmail on folks um you know our okay bio- I, I will let me let me try to scare you uh, uh, it it is not uh hard to design biological weapons these days it's disturbingly easy and soon it'll be things that high school students can do uh and to design them so they attack particular um expressions of genes is that's not easy but it's not impossible and so you could easily imagine the chinese in particular given their very substantial uh, uh, ethnic uh, uh, homogenization saying, huh, if we released this kind of biological weapon, how many people would we lose versus how many people the U.S. would lose? Uh, and maybe, you know, no one wants to think they would find that worthwhile. Uh, it would be a very dark world if that was the case. But military planners, plan for dark worlds. Uh, and so I could easily imagine uh, China wanting to know what the relative impact on its own population and on other populations around the world, a particular biological weapon would have. Yeah. I mean, Mao had this line where, you know, I think it was in the context of the Sino-Soviet split where he was like, yeah, you know, we're fine with a nuclear war. Like we have plenty of people. We can sort of refill our reserves. Um, yeah. But I mean, Stuart, like, okay, sure. Um, my sense is that, you know, however much sort of ill will we want to put, um, you know, bad actor level we want to put on the uh, CCP. And, you know, we just did a five minute segment on, on Xinjiang, right? I'm not quite willing to go that far of them sort of figuring out a way to like tar- target like the American yeah. gene Okay, uh, so, so um, maybe the, the, maybe it's just a question of knowing what, uh, uh, what the health of uh, various leaders uh, is. Um, or frankly, maybe it's just a matter of wanting to have the biggest DNA database in the world because they've got a pretty good head start, uh, so that they can start looking for a variety of variants in human DNA that might be useful for medical research. Yeah. And, you know, like, I guess stealing other people's DNA is not kind of the greatest thing to be to be up to. But I will say of all the things to have the U.S. and China competing to do, um, making the coolest, uh, fanciest new drugs is like where I want that energy to be directed towards. So, um, you know, if this is really what it if this is, you know, I'd rather I'd rather this being the sort of industrial policy focus of China than, you know, a new a new fighter jet or 
um, you know, an extra uh, an extra couple billion dollars going into sort of hacking our um, electrical in- infrastructure or or, or, or yep. whatever. So, you know, if, if, if you guys want to bring the fight to um, uh, to, to biologics, like go at it. Let's let's all race to cure okay. cancer. Uh, so we got a, a couple of, of, of things I want to get through and I want to come back to you, Jordan, about some of the uh, recent sort of broader views of, of China. But first, uh, and I don't know whether this is really short or really long, but I'm going to ask that, that you guys keep it pretty short. Paul, Mark, the Facebook Oversight Board has agreed to take uh, the question of whether uh, uh, Citizen Trump should be deplatformed, uh, and it has released a bunch of decisions overturning mainly uh, Facebook's content moderation decisions. Uh, How significant is this and what do these decisions add up to? Well, I'll go first. Um, I think that the honest answer is too soon to tell. Uh, There are many who think that the oversight board is nothing more than uh, a PR move by Facebook to you know, uh, make nice with people who don't like the way that it deals with content. There are others who think that the Oversight Board could in the end be a serious uh, and significant um, uh, check on Facebook, developing a common law of content moderation, if you will, that is more global in nature. Of the the first five decisions, four were uh, reversals of uh, Facebook's decisions, though uh, at least one of them involved a decision that Facebook had already recognized was an erroneous application of its artificial intelligence. So, you know, less significant that one. Uh, How they handled the the President Trump question, ex-President Trump question, is going to be uh, pretty significant. Uh, And then I think the more important question is, how Facebook reacts to the initial sets of decisions. Because in addition to uh, you know, acting on individual cases, in the first five decisions, the board actually uh, purported to direct Facebook to develop more transparent guidance, publish more results, you know, and, and actually take some systematic steps. If Facebook actually agrees to that, then we might be on to something. My guess is that they'll be reluctant to do that, though. Mark? Yeah, I, I think we'll see what the the decision in the case of former President Trump amounts to, and that will be for many people a test of legitimacy. But but longer term, uh, there needs to be more independence in any oversight board. Facebook basically sets the rules, controls what stuff goes there, uh, and if, for example, it says um, you can't refer a decision to the oversight board when Facebook has not taken action against something that people think is a problem. Uh, so I, I do think longer term, you're going to need something more independent, uh, something like the the uh, dispute resolution system that's been developed for FINRA, uh, for the broker-dealer world, uh, might be a model for people to think about. Uh, it's industry controlled in, a, in an abstract sense, but it's not controlled by individual companies. So I, I think we need greater independence, and that's where the system is going to uh, evolve over time. So I have a prediction on the Trump uh, uh, decision. I am pretty confident that uh, they are going to uh, reverse, at least in part, the decision to take him off 
Facebook. Uh, um, and the more foreigners there are, non-Americans, on the, the board that, that examines it, the more likely that is. Uh, and you might think that's counterintuitive, but it is my observation that everybody's political leaders look better from a distance than they look uh, up close. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm betting that Trump looks that way too. Uh, and this is a board that already has shown it's, it's leaning toward more expression. Uh, and with those two things, I think Trump's got it in the bag. Uh, so, uh, he's going to win this fight. I'll, I'll amend that, Stuart, and, 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 and kind of clarify one thing. The amendment is, I think they're going to say that retrospectively the decision to deplatform him at that time was valid because of the imminent violence. I think what they're going to say is that an indefinite suspension is too much, but a time-limited one will be it. And the clarification and, is that the board's procedures actually require any panel decision to be approved by the entire board. So we already know that there will only be four Americans in this group that decide it. Right. Sorry. Uh, President Trump, you should fire up your... Uh, promotions uh, uh, on Facebook because that's where you're going to be from now on. That's my prediction, and I think mostly Paul's. Mark, you disagree? Uh, no, uh, but to your point, uh, uh, Stuart, uh, foreigners might be more likely to be sympathetic to uh, uh, to Trump. Just just remember Angela Merkel's reaction who came to Trump's defense in, in, the, in the initial decision to deplatform him. Yep. I think that was typical of many foreign leaders. Yep, because uh, uh, they don't like Trump, but they also don't like Facebook. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I, last thing I want to talk about before we do a few quick updates. Um, uh, there were a couple of stories that came out or papers that came out that I want to ask Jordan about. Uh, uh, and uh, one of them was a... Uh, uh, a CNAS uh, uh, article uh, by uh, uh, Elsa Kanya uh, and uh, Lauren Laske. Uh, Elsa's been on the program. She's very thoughtful, uh, um, a, and she takes on the myths and realities, as she puts it, of the military-civil fusion uh, uh, doctrine in China. And then James Mulvenon, who has been in the China-watching business for as long as Elsa's been alive, uh, uh, wrote uh, that the conflict with Chinese techno-nationalism isn't coming, it's already here. Um, can you give us a, I actually think they're, they're not particularly inconsistent. Uh, I, what do you think of the, uh, uh, the articles and uh, um, where are they in agreement? Sure. Well, I'm also fans of Elsa, Lauren, and James, and I will be covering, I will be having all three of them on to talk about these two papers in the coming weeks. Um, oh, right. And I, I booked them I, before Stuart even promotion. told me we were going to talk about these. So um, just to give you uh, my uh, uh, bias on how I think the, the writing uh, the writing was. I mean, on, on military civil fusion, uh, basically the, the paper sort of, tried to burst a bit of the bubble on this um, sort of idea, which has gotten a lot of people in, in Washington very um, nervous and focused. Uh, the, the sort of broad strokes of, of, of MCF is that uh, the Chinese government can and will force any 
private sector firm to sort of work with the military industrial complex and, um, you know, hand over engineers and technology to sort of support um, the Chinese military's military upgrading. And the, the point that uh, Elsa and Lauren make, which is an important one, is that this is coming from a place of weakness. Um, the only reason you have to do this is because you have such a sort of broken, like state-owned, sclerotic um, military um you know, armament system in the first place. Um, you know, if everything was 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 firing on full cylinders, um, you'd have private sector firms who'd be happy to sort of sign these contracts and wouldn't necessarily need to be forced into into doing it. So, um, you know, the Chinese clearly have been very innovative, particularly on sort of like doctrinal stuff over the past um, 15 years or so. But when it comes to kind of producing the the um, the shiniest, uh, the shiniest uh, hardware and software to kind of uh, back up the new philosophy when it comes to you know area, um, you know area defense and what have you. Um, that isn't quite in the cards yet. I will say though, Stuart, that this is a hard thing to kind of evaluate the success of from the outside. Um, yep. You know, th there are sort of whispers here and there about how you know uh, you know how widespread it is and how successful the process is, and you know you see companies every once in a while on like message boards posting about their employees like are annoyed that they have to kind of do this project for the government or what have you um but to, to get a real sense of just how uh successful and impactful these cooperations are in upgrading the chinese military's capability you probably need to go on the high side to um uh, to to really yeah my observation would be that if uh uh to find a place where the U.S. defense sector doesn't look sclerotic and uncompetitive, you probably have to go to China. Uh, it, it, it's it's it, it's endemic uh, in this kind of uh, uh, industry uh, uh, to to do this. I, my my current thinking on the military civil fusion um, uh, doctrine in China is not that it's all that new uh, uh, it, it, and not that it's necessarily successful, although I think we have to worry, uh, but that it is a, it's the nicest thing about uh, China uh, compared to the Russians is how much they feel obliged to publish about exactly what they're planning to do. So if you want to know what industries in the United States China is going to be gunning for, you just read their military civil uh, fusion ambitions and the industries they name as key to military civil fusion are the ones that uh, they'll be coming after uh, in the United States. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is this is something sort of fundamental about the Chinese system is that it is so big and so sort of, you know, there's a there's a billion people. There's God knows how many sort of corporations um, and, and to kind of get the word out to all the cadres and all the people who work in all these companies. You can't have everything yeah. be secret because you just can't kind of push you can't get the bureaucracy to work by having everything sort of be super classified and what have you. Um, the other point I want to so, make so what about, about what about sorry. the techno nationalism uh, uh, argument uh, that uh, that James touches on? Uh, he's he says, well, we're already in a fight with Chinese techno nationalism. That doesn't strike me as surprising at all. Um, I just want to make one more point on the uh, on the uh, military okay. civil fusion stuff, which is that um, it is not surprising to me that it took two academics um, to make the point that military civil fusion may not be all that it's cracked up to me. Um, the sort of incentives in Washington to build this up as a big, bad, scary thing um, 
come from the perspective of sort of selling add-on research to do um, more uh, look in, work into this as well as being a kind of lever to push Silicon Valley to say, hey, look, they're doing it. If you guys don't help us out, we're going we're gonna to fall behind. Um, uh, do you want to lead me into the uh, James stuff again? Yeah. So, uh, so what did uh, what did James say that was really significantly different from uh, uh, from those points? Um, I mean, I think I think I think James's point, and it's interesting to look at um, this work in the context of rumors of him potentially being the next uh, head of BIS and Commerce, which is in charge of the future of sort of U.S. export controls, which everyone knows who listens to this show has been particularly impactful with the likes of, you know, ZT and Huawei. And um, well, plus, they've been given this enormous set of responsibilities for dealing with uh, Chinese products and entering the United States. And you know, those executive orders were signed by Trump and they might come uh, be revoked, but they haven't so far. And every day that goes by, it looks less likely they will be. Yeah. I mean, yeah, my, my take on uh I actually don't have a super sharp take on James's piece. Uh, I think it's sort yeah. of it's it's pretty consensus, um, and and yeah. it makes sense. To That's me. what I thought. All right. Um, well, let me uh, let me turn to a couple of other just quick things that'll uh, uh, and then it'll get us out. Uh, one last uh, uh, Chinese element. Uh, um, TikTok uh, is still subject to a CFIUS order, is still supposedly negotiating uh, uh, to find a deal to buy a buyer who will prevent it from being uh, uh, forcibly uh, divested of uh, actually musically, whatever musically is. Um, I, I do not expect any uh, action uh, uh, on that, uh, and I think maybe James said this, which is that uh, um, the Chinese government doesn't really care if some of its companies get beaten about the head and shoulders. They don't. They, they, they don't exist to help their companies. Their companies exist to help them, and uh, and so they have. I think they have decided they are going to force the Biden administration, as they forced the Trump administration, to either admit that they can't enforce the civilian's uh, judgment, uh, or surrender. Uh, and uh, that means they're not going to approve any deals that will be face-saving for either administration. I, I, I'm just guessing about that, but that's how I see things if I were, how I would see them if I were in Beijing. Well, that's awful grim, Stuart. I'm, if I had to guess, I'm going to guess that that would be the only way to really get the Biden people to press on this. I'm, I'm sure that they're actually pretty happy to just let it go, but not if... Uh, uh, and and pick fights with China in other places, right? But not if the Chinese yeah. make this a a mano a mano contest over who's got the bigger stick. Okay, uh, I, I, because uh, content suppression has to be covered at least uh, briefly in every episode. Uh, YouTube has demonetized the Epic Times, which you know I think of as an anti-China uh, sort of Falun Gong. Uh, influenced uh, 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 press entity, but not crazy. Uh, uh, Jordan, do you think the Epic Times is like irresponsible in some fashion? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, they 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 they've got coronavirus conspiracy theories. It, they're they're very much, I think, off the 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 rocker, and you know, we disagree about where the line should be drawn when it comes to content moderation. But um, you know, the sort of the sort of stuff that they are spinning out, particularly in uh, not only in English but also in Mandarin, is really out there, and um, does that definitely deserves uh, a lot more scrutiny than they than they than they've been able. To sort of avoid going forward. Okay, I, I am, I am prepared to believe that. I I always read them with some care because they obviously have a, an axe to grind. But uh, I I uh, I would not have said uh, they were even in Breitbart's lead. But I I'll take your word for it. Uh, uh, Google also blocked the ads. This one I I. I don't understand entirely uh, uh, from a legal group that is opposing what they believe uh, with some justice is a democratic plan to, to pack the Supreme Court by adding justices to it. And they're, they wanted to buy ads saying, don't let uh, President Biden um, pack the court. And Google said, oh, well, you know, there's a sensitive uh, uh, event happening namely the inauguration. So we're not going to let you buy ads. I, and all I can see there is they just didn't want Republicans buying ads uh, that would uh, spoil the party for, uh, for President Biden. Uh, and just what, one last thing, I thought this was interesting because it sort of shows how this works, how working the ref works in content moderation. Um, there is a movement to uh, recall Gavin Newsom, who's not a very popular guy, especially because of the way he's handled uh, the coronavirus uh, uh, crisis, but he's not, uh, not popular with Republicans anyway. Um, the Los Angeles Times did a deep dive on the recall effort and found that QAnon and anti-vaxxers and Proud Boys and all the usual uh, boogeymen uh, uh, had participated in trying to get uh, uh, signatures or otherwise uh, support the recall effort. Uh, and shortly thereafter, Facebook said, we're not gonna allow uh, the recall effort to place ads. So there's an, a remarkably effective way, if you wanna persuade Facebook to take somebody down, you just have to tie them to um, kind of the current boogeymen of the uh, uh, of the left, uh, um, some of whom you know really are boogeymen. I I, I will grant you, but uh, imagine if you were trying to do a recall, um, and somebody showed up and said, "I can get you some signatures." You're not going to say, "Oh, let me check your uh, your Facebook posts and uh, uh, your uh, your Reddit uh, uh, posts before I let you go out and gather signatures." Uh, so this sort of um, uh, guilt by association strategy will almost always work if you're trying to get uh, uh, a right-leaning group taken down. All right, let's turn to our interview now, which is with Kieran Martin. We've interviewed him before when he was the head of the uh, National Cybersecurity Center uh, for the United Kingdom. Uh, and uh, he has finished up with that job, now teaches at Oxford University, uh, uh, and we're going to be talking to him about uh, uh, the many lessons he learned uh, trying to do the job, a job that combines a lot of 
different uh, uh, positions in, in the U.S. government. Uh, there's a little bit of NSA uh, in it. There's a little bit of DHS's CISA, maybe even a little bit of Cyber Command. Um, uh, so, uh, Kieran, welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. All right. I, and I, I, I want to start with that question. Uh, uh, if you were trying to find analogies to what uh, the NCSC does uh, uh, in the U.S. government, you would kind of have to uh, shuffle together three or four agencies, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. And first of all, it is it is great to be back. You know what? I reckon I'm not sure I've actually appeared on the show as head of the NCSC because this was my first ever media appearance uh, when the NCSC was set up. But I came out to the Billington conference in September 2016, which I think was about th three weeks before the NCSC legally went went live. Now I've now I've ended my term, so it's a nice it's a nice bookend, and at least I live to tell the tale. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, the US and the UK, as always, you know, uh, the old phrase about being um, divided by a common language. There are some quite differences. Obviously, size is one thing. So the US has a much greater scale. And one of the logics for the NCSC was I think the US can afford several centers of world class expertise in cyber. You got it at the NSA, you got it at Cyber Command, you got it at parts of the CIA, parts of the Bureau, you got it increasingly in CISA. Uh, the UK, I think, being, you know, a fifth of the size population-wise, although a large country by international uh, standards and economic wealth, um, wanted to 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 to, to centralise it. I think if you add um, if you add the cybersecurity director of the NSA plus CISA, you've got most of what the National Cybersecurity Centre is is in in equivalence terms. I think it's also an issue. I mean, apart from the fact that I think it's pretty bad manners to, you know, lecture other countries and what they should do, particularly ones that are bigger uh, than you and your closest ally. You know, I think there is also a difference in that um, for just historic constitutional legal reasons. Changing the machinery of government in the UK is really quite straightforward. Almost some would say it's too easy. The prime minister can just order it and it is done. I remember back in 2008, I um, literally printed out a piece of A4 called Department of Energy and Climate Change because I was working in the central department at the time. Somebody unscrewed a little plaque and we put it in and the Department of Energy and Climate <laughs> Change was born. Obviously in the US with authorities and the need to consult Congress, these things, as I remember when DHS was set up 20 years ago, nearly 20 years ago, these things take ages and involve all sorts of negotiations. So in the UK, the overheads of actually shifting or organizational agency responsibilities are really low compared to the US. So that's another reason why I think, you know, the, the UK may change structures more often than the US does. Although actually, I, I mean, I would say that this is less of a change than uh, was worked in the US um, with the creation of uh, DHS and CISA, because um, you're part of the a UK equivalent of NSA, uh, uh, and uh, you were, uh, and and that uh, keeps all of the cyber expertise in one place, as opposed to moving it off to uh, to a second civilian agency. I think that's right, and again, there are reasons for that difference. I mean, a lot of American friends will tell, I have told me, and I don't know whether you agree or not, but you know, um, they viewed that. Uh, an equivalent of the National Cybersecurity Center, which is a very public-facing organization, a public-facing subset of an intelligence agency that just doing that as a subset of the NSA wouldn't really work in, 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 in the U.S. system, and particularly, you know, after the 
um, uh, Snowden leaks and, and 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 so on. In the UK, different sort of set of, um, of of political circumstances. And I think you know the background to it being set up in the UK was that um, we try to think to manage two extremes. So at one end, you've got an extreme where it's a very classified setup. Um, which is what we had, you know, GCHU were the operational lead on cybersecurity. And I think Prime Minister Cameron, who was in office at the time when the decisions were taken, he used to, you know, he used to feel, and I think he had a point that, um, you know, he used to sometimes um, tease us that we were the best students of cybersecurity he'd ever come across. We would come with, come to him and say, look, look at this superb piece of detective intelligence work we've done. He'd say, okay, well, that's terrific work. What are we going to do about this? Well, I'm afraid it's highly classified, Prime Minister. We can't really do very much with it at all. Um, you know, and let's say it was a, and this is a anonymized real example, it's a, 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 nation, a hostile nation state intrusion on a critically, on a privately owned critical infrastructure company. And well, you know, we, we might be able to tell one British national properly security vetted individual in the company, but what's that person going to do with it if they can't talk to their... So you can see the problem. On the other hand of the spectrum, you know, and which is a very popular model in continental Europe, it's to have a civilian agency with few, if any, ties to the national security community. And the problem with that is you get maybe great advice on a nice website, but what can you get off them that you can't get off Symantec or whoever uh, and just pay for it? So we were trying to do the hybrid and it was difficult, um, but we were trying to essentially have the best of the covert world where you could have the accesses of a world-class intelligence agency and the expertise that comes with that because one of the you know you do get some people as you do in the US some brilliant technical minds who are prepared to work for the government for much less money than you get in California or in you know in Shoreditch in London or wherever from 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 tech companies but they're prepared to do it because they believe in the mission you could do that but you could try to find ways of getting the expertise out getting the information out that benefited the um, benefit of the country as a whole. Well, it is also true. They work in part because um, breaking into systems for a lot of people is a lot more fun than, than protecting them, which tends to be uh, all about uh, doing the same thing, following the rule book, making sure you haven't left anything off your checklist. Uh, um, uh, whereas uh, if, you're, if you're doing attack, you can... Uh, try a lot of things you can go with your uh, instincts on some things and uh, you can do some brilliant improvisation which is appeals to a different kind of person i think that's right there is that sort of poacher gamekeeper um symbiosis if you like and i remember you know one, one of my best operational seniors had a background in the offensive um uh, side and i think all of them were, were involved in it obviously you've got and we may come on to this, but you've got things like equities processes to try to determine what the balance of, 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 of interest in, is in and so on. But I think absolutely, you know, if you've got people who are trying to break the technology, then it does have benefits for the um, defensive side as well. And we benefited from that enormously, I think. So they say that familiarity breeds contempt. And I, I won't call it contempt, but I have noticed in your remarks since you left a distinct lack of enthusiasm for the idea that having the world's best cyber attack capabilities is going to help us prevent cyber attacks on our own infrastructure. Uh, maybe I'm overstating that, but uh, uh, do you think that uh, there is a tendency in the US or elsewhere 
to say we are really good at cyber attack. Now let's find a way to deter our uh, adversaries from uh, getting into our systems. So I'm no I'm no cyber pacifist. So let me say two things. One, I'll just repeat what you just prompted me to say, which is that the synergies of having really you know really good attackers for defense is really is 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 really important. And I think also when, I think it's rare, I'll come on to this, but when an opportunity presents itself to use good offense to take out something that's going to be harmful and you can do that in a targeted way that's not going to cause collateral damage as, you know, happens with criminal disruptions and so forth, I'm all for that. And if it can be done to nation state adversaries, um, then I'm all for that too. I think the problem comes with a slight what I call boxing ring mentality of cyber. So you get a cyber attack on you and somebody goes, right, well, we have to hit back with our brilliant defense of cyber capabilities and I think that just profoundly misunderstands what these things are for and um, that sort of cyber power that cyber offense and um, the purpose of that is not cyber security it's a general tool for the state as and when it needs it so let's take and I you know I'm not I'm just talking about this in terms of what I've read in open source as well but let's take the apparent narrative around Stuxnet um, so Stuxnet is a very um, a powerful apparent use of offensive cyber capabilities, but it's nothing to do with um, it's nothing to do with a cyber threat to Israel or to its allies. It's to do with a nuclear threat. Um, if you look at the public narrative around the UK's new national cyber force, they're talking about support to war fighting capabilities. Check, but nothing to do with cyber defense. Yep. We're talking about disrupting international pedophile rings in non-Western jurisdictions, so beyond the uh, reach of um, uh, of law enforcement. Check. I mean, I'm a bit queasy in the UK context about why that needs a quasi-military organization for something that's just so classically law enforcement, and I'm more comfortable with intelligence-led disruption, but you can have that discussion. And, you know, the, the, the one big UK offensive cyber operation done under US leadership, which has been publicly acknowledged, is the operation against the Islamic, so-called Islamic states, uh, propaganda operations ahead of the Mosul offensive. Again, no problem with that being used, but it's got absolutely nothing to do with domestic cybersecurity. So I think that um, there's this, there's this sort of, you know, if it were any other, uh, capability, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So we've been hit. I mean, I mean, if I can give you sometimes in in the abstract, you know, using a deliberately absurd example is the best way of illustrating the point. So Russia in 2018 launched the first chemical weapons attack on European soil since the end of the Second World War in the United Kingdom. We thought of all sorts of different ways of responding to that attack or deterring it in the future. The deployment of chemical weapons in Russian soil was not one of them. There is no reason <laughs> right. why there is no reason why you fight cyber with cyber. And the one thing I think offensive cyber has a decent record in counterterrorism. I hope it has a good record, will develop a good record in countering um, child sexual exploitation online. And hope, I hope to see it have an impact on ransomware potentially, which would be a cyber benefit. It's essential for support to modern military uh, capabilities. But the one thing it's proven ineffective at most of the time is at deterring um, hostile state, uh, deterring or disruption hostile state uh, cyber attacks. And we shouldn't pretend that it is. We need to do other things. Yeah, I think we there's a pretty good argument that uh, the uh, upshot of uh, uh, the uh, Iranian intrusion uh, uh, was more Iranian cyber attacks. Uh, I think they thought they had to strike back uh, in cyberspace and did with a bunch of, you know, not so sophisticated, but still pretty aggravating attacks on uh, U.S. banks. Well, certainly I've read Jason Healy's work where he would have made the point that 
um, the message to Iran was they needed to develop their own uh, capabilities and certainly subsequent to that Iran have developed their own capabilities and I'm not here to I have no definitive judgment to give that I could prove on cause and effect but uh, there is at least circumstantial evidence that Jason's right um, and uh, you know I think there is something around uh, to what extent um, because I mean I suppose I'm not just you know I'm not going to sort of cop um I'm not going to take the easy way out of the consequences of my own position, you know, uh, uh, by saying, oh, it's fine for everything, just don't overinvest your hopes in cyber defense. I do think um, uh, don't overinvest your hopes for offensive cyber as a means to helping your own cybersecurity, because I do think there are costs and trade-offs. So I do think we are naive about managing risk. Uh, you know, we've not got a good record on safeguarding these capabilities, and they can then be used to, if they're stolen or leaked, they can be used to weaponize the general digital uh, environment. Uh, we, you know, uh, we need to be sure that we're not going to do a not petty as Russia did, you know, launch a really reckless attack supposedly in Ukraine, but, you know, in my favorite example, it affects a chocolate factory in Tasmania. Um, and also, we need to be cognizant of the risk of your Iran point, you know, that we incentivize a um, digital arms race, which more open, more networked, more free liberal democracies will probably have more to lose and a lower threshold for pain uh, than uh, than some of our adversaries. So I think, we, you know, as I say, I'm not a pacifist, but we need to be a bit more careful. Um, we need to think this through quite carefully about to, to what extent we want to um, uh, you know, uh, have these capabilities, how, how we store them and to what extent, you know, we want to weaponize um, the, the, the internet. And I think it's it's well worth keeping a close eye on that. So uh, let me let me ask quickly. What do you think if if using cyber weapons to uh, respond to cyber espionage or cyber attacks isn't the most obvious uh, uh, or most obviously effective uh, response? Are we stuck with indictments that never send anybody to jail and sanctions that may or may not have an impact and which? clearly have less impact as we use them over and over again. Uh, is there anything else we could be doing to uh, discourage this kind of wholesale uh, um, intrusion into our networks? So I, I agree, it's a tough, it's a tough call. Um, and it partly depends what it is. So first of all, there is a generic thing about, you know, I think in the broad sweep of history in 50 years time, you know, the first phase of the, the first generation of mass internet technology, there'll be a sort of received wisdom that we just didn't make it secure enough. And there are far too many people who can mess around with it, including just, um, you know, avaricious criminals with no political uh, agenda. So there is something about, you know, about just fixing the technology um, uh, and, and fixing cybersecurity practices. Then I think in terms of, you know, state aggression, um, let me put it in sort of ways of, of three different levels. You've got what you you know the sunburst, solar winds level, which let's face it, um, based on the evidence we have in public, and I haven't been in government since this all started, so that's all I'm drawing on. We'd want to be pretty careful. You can make diplomatic protests, you can do indictments and so forth, but on the basis of the evidence we now have, it's pretty similar to the classic sort of digital espionage operations that others um, that that you know uh, we ourselves do perfectly uh, lawfully uh, for good reason. So um, I'm not sure any sort of serious escalation is justified on, in that case. If you look at um, you know, I can take from the premises. Can I stop you on that? Because sure. I I hear this. I we heard this 
from uh, the the DNI at the time, uh, um, uh, uh, Jim Clapper, uh, who said, you know, kind of my hats off to them that they pulled off the OPM hack. Um, I, I'm not sure that's right. I mean, let's if we were talking about uh, Burgess and McLean and uh, uh, people stealing uh, atomic secrets from uh, uh, the U.S. or the U.K., we'd feel pretty entitled to be mad about it. We might say it was a violation of our law but not of international law, but we are going to make you regret it. We're going to do everything we can to make you fail uh, in the future. Um, Isn't it appropriate to say if you're going to carry out espionage of that kind, we're going to take measures that will be painful to you to make sure you can't do it in the future? Well, you can argue the point. I mean, I think there is a sense in this continent on Sunburst that the U.S. is harmed but not wronged by the attack and i think you know even in very pro uk pro us uk opinion that would be the uh, that that would be the mood but also i mean i mean I, I don't think that's incompatible with saying as in other great strategic espionage setbacks of the past in the pre-digital uh, world that some form of response um is appropriate but the question is what and you know if you walk through the offensive options on on this um uh, you know, there's taking out um, the, if it is the SVR, it's taking out the SVR infrastructure. But I mean, as I've seen, there's some pretty lazy media commentary that, well, you took out the Internet Research Agency uh, infrastructure, so why not take out the SVRs? They're very different things. The Internet Research Agency is a troll <laughs> yeah, farm. <laughs> the SVR should be. Yeah, yeah, basically funded by some billionaire right, uh, who has yeah. no particular tradecraft. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 like the difference between taking baby candy from a baby and taking an AK-47 from a soldier. <laughs> Well, precisely. Uh, put, you couldn't have put it better myself. So, you know, good luck if you want to, although it does legitimize um, counterattacks on the on the SVR. And then what? I mean, realistically, what are you going to do with offensive cyber as a result of this? I mean, you know, you're going to take out the six o'clock news on Moscow State TV. I mean, fine, but be a bit random. I mean, what, what, um, you're going to take out the power supply to a hospital in Vladivostok? I'm, I seriously hope not, because be, so it's just. I mean, so in a sense, I'm reverting now to pragmatism, Stuart. What I mean, what what are we going to do that's going to send the sort of message that we want? So we we are a bit we are a bit stuck uh, in that respect. And again, you know, people will differ. If you take, you know, I think the settled view in the UK, and you may. I would be perfectly comfortable with you disputing this, um, but the settled view in the UK around the time of um, uh, the Salisbury poisoning attack was that the coordinated global diplomatic response with a mixture of sanctions and mass expulsions of, of Russian uh, diplomats was, you know, a surprisingly uh, effective one. But there was a perfectly valid school of thought that said just because you sent some, you know, attaches packing their bags, uh, it was, uh, there was a sort of so what. But as I say, what realistically, you know, in this sort of grey zone activity, it don't we do sometimes. Um, struggle. If you move up a level um, to, so, you know, there's that sort of classic espionage. Let's move up to, say, China and not OPM, but to um, uh, commercial espionage. So the thing that, you know, we started to say was a really big violation of norms. Firstly, again, I think we need to, you know, just be cognizant of how that appears. I mean, in the UK, um, commercial espionage was stopped all the way back in the mid 1990s, and it was made illegal all the way back in 2016. You know, so I mean, it's you know something that we're sort of saying to the Chinese is a long-established <laughs> and viable norm. You know, um, come on, years we've been we've been, yeah. yes. we've been doing it for years. In fact, we've been doing it for four 
years, five years now. Um, so, you know, um, um, but at the same time, and you will remember this, and it wasn't perfect, and it didn't stand the test of time, but you know, the Obama era sanctions and all of that and the threat of further, sorry, the threat of further sanctions and the indictments did send somebody on a plane on a Sunday before G's state visit and so forth to sign a declaration which eventually breached, did bias, as Suzanne Spaulding and others have pointed out, did bias a couple of quiet years on them. Um, on, uh, on on Chinese espionage. Then you move on to, you know, a horror show. You know, what would happen if uh, Not Petty had really sort of, you know, got worse? What would happen if it was the equivalent of a, of, of a Salisbury? And, um, I mean, it's possible then that you're talking about um, retaliatory um, uh, cyber attacks and so on, but you've got to be careful because, you know, as I say, you don't, I mean, if something is tantamount to a human rights abuse, then we don't respond with, human rights abuses. Uh, so we wouldn't want to do something of that severity. I do think that, for example, if you take the, if you take the UK, and obviously I'm more comfortable talking about the UK, I think there's been a trend which I'd like to see accelerated and applied more aggressively. You know, uh, London, unlike other European, um, or some other European countries and some other Western countries, ha uh, has an awful lot of Russian financial interests. So there is something there that genuinely matters to the Russian elite that you can take um, serious action against. I think you know you can do you can do more of that. The point being that um, you know in grey zone activity, short of declarations of war. The reason adversarial powers do it is that democracies find it difficult to respond to. Of course they do. It's because of our values and our rules, our rule of law and so on. So we shouldn't be ashamed of the fact we find it difficult to respond to. And we should just work out what works as best we can. I do think that offensive cyber is rarely that useful in this context. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I, I, so I, the other thing I was struck by uh, is you did a kind of listing of what are the things that are really dangerous that happen in cyberspace that we really don't like. Uh, and you talked about cyber espionage and you talked about uh, a uh, cyber uh, 911 or cyber Pearl Harbor, a catastrophic attack. But you kind of pointed out, well, you know, uh, that kind of thing has never happened. Uh, I, and you fingered ransomware as the biggest harm actually being done through cyber vulnerabilities to uh, uh, the UK or the US right now. Um, you, you still think that's the biggest problem we face? Yeah, I mean, we can't neglect the catastrophic risk, but those quotes about cyber 9-11s and cyber Pearl harbors are direct quotes from senior Western, often American um, uh, figures. And obviously they haven't happened and maybe some of that's luck, but I think some of it is, um, I mean, firstly, you know, at a sort of theoretical level, you've got, you know, the excellent work by the likes of Professor Thomas Ridge showing that a lot of this, um, you know, potential cyber harm is at, is at, is at one remove. So for example, I do remember, you know, war gaming, um, an attack on the signaling um, of, a, of a railway system. And when you think about it, you know, there's no railway system in the world, in the developed world anyway, that means that if you took out the signal, then all of a sudden all the trains start talking to, uh, start colliding into each other. There should be safety, there should be, um, you know, backstops that mean, okay, it's monstrously inconvenient because you've got thousands of people stranded in the middle of the countryside on a stationary train, but it's not going to collide. You know, so there should always be, you know, um, uh, safety mechanisms, um, whether you have to land planes manually, <laughs> like in the old days or, or whatever, which means that 
that cyber catastrophes are are are, are less likely. But then also the capability, you know, and as we all know, anybody can do a basic hack. And you could teach, you know, in the course of the rest of the podcast, we could teach anybody who wanted the basic, you know, SQL injection or something. But to take out an industrial control system in a really forensic way takes enormous skill, resources, uh, money and so forth. So it tends to be nation states. And while some of them are malevolent, very few of them are utterly irrational and are going to launch these capabilities in a way, you know, I mean, you know, Russia is no more likely to try to kill thousands of Americans or Britons through cyber attack than it is through you know, an airstrike. Um, so, you know, there is that inbuilt, it doesn't make it impossible, but there is that inbuilt, um, you know, uh, stabilizer, if you like, against the catastrophic attack. In the meantime, I think we missed the chronic risk in particular. And, you know, I'm being self-critical here. We did miss ransomware. We missed just how much um, systems were being crippled. And it really brought home to me, there were two things. One was, you mentioned CISA. You know, I remember discussing with Chris Rourke Krebs in February of 2020 at the Munich Security Conference, the problem in local government in both countries, in healthcare in both countries and so forth, where, you know, people's public services were being disrupted in a way that could cause harm. We were both determined to do something about it. Then, of course, pandemics hit and and all the rest of it. and then when the pandemic hit and we were diverting so much of National Cybersecurity Centre resources into look, protecting healthcare systems and associated crucial things around the pandemic, um, the biggest risk was that some hospital system was going to be completely overwhelmed. And you had near misses in the Czech Republic. You had a healthcare services provider in Germany um, hit by ransomware and that disrupted medical supplies to German hospitals. And then you had this case in Dusseldorf where a woman was in an ambulance and had to be diverted to a different hospital and died on the way, although the authorities couldn't prove causal effects. So it's still not the first official death attributable to uh, um, uh, to, 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 to cyber attack. So, um, and, you know, there's evidence, some good research by Cornell University about, um, you know, Poor healthcare outcomes in hospitals that have been hit by cyber attacks. So we've we've missed this. Well, we haven't missed it, but we we underpriced this chronic risk, and um, uh, that's why I felt passionately about trying to point point that out because that's what's going to crush. I mean, you know, people eventually, if you scare them for decades about something and it doesn't happen, they may, um, as we've done with sort of you know cyber Armageddon, um, they might switch off a bit. But actually. This real risk to public services, to healthcare, is 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 with us. It's with us, Stuart. So, what would you, what unique capabilities beyond the usual indictments and uh, uh, sanctions would you suggest we adopt to try to get at the ransomware problem? So I think there's probably two or three areas. One is here is an area where offensive cyber might well work. At the end of the day, these are criminals, not states. So you might be able to find them. Um, and you know, there have been some very good operations against criminal gangs with offensive cyber. So if you, you know, by all means, go for it if you can. Um, uh, I do think there's a problem with the ransomware business model. Um, it pays out too easily. Um, in the UK, you can, um, get a ransom payment and insurance policy, but you can't cover a GDPR fine. I don't know who that makes sense to, but it doesn't make any sense to me. And uh, on, um, and I do think, you know, better protections. I mean, you know, um, actually, in some weird way, the fact that ransomware is moving a bit towards leaking data 
uh, shows that some people are doing it better because the old style ransomware, which is just withdrawal of um, yeah, because they've they've uh, done the backups and and now the, the ransomware so artists are discovering they need exactly. some other leverage. Yeah. yeah. So so basically, three 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 sets of activity: uh, offensive cyber. Um, change the business model, including looking really closely at things like in, uh, whether it's legal to pay uh, in, in insurance, and um, and linked to that is uh, better protections, including things like insurance. You know, for example, well, what is negligence against ransomware? What you know, when should you pay? Even if you're allowed to pay it, when should you? You know, what's good corporate governance or risk management and that sort of thing. I'm surprised, given that you're coming from the country that uh, made the Official Secrets Act uh, famous, uh, that you didn't say maybe when people threaten to release all of your files on the internet, it ought to be possible to get an order that tells everybody uh, uh, that if you publish those uh, stolen files, you will be liable. That's not a bad idea, actually. I think, you know, and there's plenty of things like that that would be interested in. I mean, more generally, in that sort of, you know, leak and disinformation uh, space, I think there is a big issue. I, I, although thankfully it appears that this didn't have to be invoked and it's a different issue, I thought the Washington Post statement about, you know, ahead of the election saying if we receive information that's from possibly a sort of hack and leak, we're going to be take take extraordinary care with it. I think there is that we really do need to be thinking along those um, along those ways, and we can find ways of doing that are that are compatible with freedom of speech. All right. Kieran Martin, this is terrific. We're just about run out of time, but uh, uh, I'll give you uh, uh, two minutes to tell us what you think uh, we should be doing about the challenge uh, of China's technology policies uh, uh, in terms of the future of the U.S. and the U.K.'s ability to respond and uh, carry out uh, uh, cyber uh, activities. Well, I think China is, you know, I mean, it's a cyber attack problem like Russia, but it's also, you know, um, Ken McCallum, the excellent head of MI5 over here, says, you know, amongst uh, as all the people do, that Russia is severe bad weather, but China is climate change. And I think that's right. So China's trying to build an alternative division of technology, much more authoritarian. It's had traction uh, here in uh, Europe, although, um, you know, thanks to pressure from the Trump administration and others, but also a significant change in opinion in, in Europe that's beginning to change. But I think the point is that you know, driving out Chinese technology is not the main answer. China's trying to um, China China is trying to outcompete the West. It's trying to get better 5G so it enhances an economic lead that it expects to 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 to, to get. You know, Huawei in Italy or the UK is a secondary uh, um, objective. So I think we've got to do a better job at collaborating on making sure that um, you know we don't end up in a position where we've got two Scandinavian um, telecoms infrastructure providers and nothing else in Western Europe and the and North America. And, you know, whilst the EU can be a precarious um, partner, at least it's a market. So the US, you know, um, rather than drift away into um, a separate tech market uh, and the EU, rather than focusing on regulating California, might actually do a bit better. And it's a long, hard path ahead, but to try to create some common purpose. The problem with, um, you know, uh, the, the challenge is that traditional security alliances like the Five Eyes aren't an economic unit. You know, they're not an economic block. They find it really hard to do this stuff. It's basically about trade. So I think, you know, with the EU, you can have a very tough negotiation. With the UK and Japan, you can have a very easy negotiation. But what would follow from it? So try to 
um, with with the non-EU people try to put in some actual economic infrastructure to follow this up, which doesn't currently exist, and with the EU try to align some decent sort of commercial standards so you can have a free, scalable, open digital infrastructure market. Well, we're we're certainly going to miss getting British advice from the inside about handle how to handle the EU. Now you're just stuck on the outside uh, railing against the uh, irrationalities of some of their policies, uh, but we'll still take your advice. Uh, uh, Kieran Martin, thank you very much. Uh, this has been terrific, uh, and we'll hope to have you on again soon. Thank you so much, Stuart. Great to see you. All right. That is the end of the podcast. I want to thank uh, Kieran Martin. I want to thank uh, uh, Jordan, Paul Rosenzweig, Mark, for joining us. Uh, oh, and before I leave, though, I do have this announcement, uh, especially to loyal listeners who put up with us all the way to the end. Um, we're thinking about hiring somebody to be a producer, engineer, intern, dog's body for the podcast. Uh, we've staffed it in a variety of different ways, and we're going to have to rejigger the staffing again. Uh, and so we haven't made a decision to do this, but if you think that you know somebody who would be good for that, and frankly, all you have to do is be enthusiastic and smart and wouldn't hurt to be in Washington, have them send a, their resume to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Uh, I, I can't promise you that this is the direction we'll take, but if we do, be good to have your paper. All right, thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 347 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. You can make the program better by sending feedback to us at the same address, Podcast at Steptoe. Suggest a guest, and if they come on the show, we'll give you our highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. Review the show. Those reviews are getting a little stale. We could use another couple. Um, and we'll read them on the air if they are entertaining at all. Uh, and then join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.